Welcome to Mental Health by TalkLink. I'm Rowan, and today we'll be speaking with Philip Armstrong, the CEO of the Australian Counselling Association. The ACA is the largest registration and peak body for counsellors in the country, with approximately 7,000 registered members. The purpose of this podcast is to have open chats with mental health professionals, and it's not designed to be used as individualised therapy. Please take it as general information only, and visit the show notes for personalised support if you need it. These podcasts are brought to you by TalkLink, which is an online directory connecting young Australians with the right mental health practitioner. Finally, if you'd like to ask Philip a question, you can do so anonymously at talklink.com.au forward slash podcast. We'll do our best to answer it in a follow-up Q&A session. You're looking at over 56% of people who survive COVID, and obviously we have far more survivors than deaths. have now got psychological disorders or um, behavioural um, issues as a repercussion of, um, of COVID itself. The problem with suicide you know, is always very hard to pin it down to one issue. It's usually a, a, a layering of issues and then there's a catalyst. And, and so the lockdown could be the catalyst. And particularly uh, young kids who are already suffering from maybe um, social issues, suddenly the lockdown is, is the catalyst. It's interesting you talk about layering. I know my personal experience when I think about stress, I'd like to think that I have a high capacity to deal with stress. But at certain points in your life, something very small can can seem almost unbearable. And with the benefit of hindsight, you can step back and you can say, well, you know, it wasn't that, that thing. It was that plus another whole bunch of layers that stacked on top of each other and you're holding and bearing the weight of all that. So it's interesting hearing you talk about the layering because that's certainly been my personal experience as well. Yeah, look, yeah, I mean, uh, if you want to compare uh, humans to even even a bridge, you know, you have a, a there's a foundation that has a certain bearing before uh, once it reaches that cr- that critical um, bearing weight, it gives uh, resilience. Is it, it resilience is the human being? That's how our, our foundation that 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 that. Uh, allows us to build up a certain amount of stress mm. and you know, once it, it reaches that critical point and the problem is you never know exactly where that critical point is because there are things that impact on them temperature um, you know what's happening in the in the local surroundings uh, even the speed of the uh, the object going off it uh, going over it can impact on that foundation so human beings were no different it can be uh, something very simple something very complex we just aren't too sure at the time um, you know what that limit is, and but also how is it going to be impacted by our surroundings? If our surroundings are good, we've got a lot of support. We might have a lot of resilience left, but that resilience is still there. But uh, if there's no support and uh, things aren't going well, then there's uh, that the, the resilience is basically is at a, a critical tipping point. Yeah, and the stat that always yeah. hits hard for me is seventy five percent of the suicides in Australia are male. Um, yeah. Do you see that, I guess, in your work? Um, look, I, I see it in our work. Um, I know, uh, particularly when I was um, more spent more time in the field, unfortunately, men are far more effective at suicide. So and, and what we can say, more men are, are successful at suicide, mm. not necessarily more men attempt suicide than females. Um, it's just that particularly mature-age males, when you look at the, uh, the way they suicide compared to females, yeah, you know, uh, when you when you use a, a gun in the mouth or something like that, there's generally no coming back from it. But taking mm. tablets or something like that, then you know, there's a, a greater chance of uh, being found, and so you can uh, help the person. 
Yeah, my sister's a paramedic and she mentioned something that's perfectly consistent with what you're saying, which is men tend to choose more violent approaches, mm. um, you know, hangings and shootings, whereas women tend to use basically poisons or, or pharmaceutical means. Yeah, it's extremely rare to hear of a woman shooting herself. Why do you think that is? Well, I think for a start, women, you know, females by nature, by genetics, um, by na- nature, nurture, whatever you want to call it, are more passive than men. Um, they're uh, particularly historically, they're less likely to take up uh, firearms and be uh, overtly aggressive. Um, mm. I think that's changing, unfortunately. I, I, you know, I have no idea why uh, the women's movement would want to. You know, I've always had, I've always struggled with this concept: that women want to be like men. I have the same this, that, the other. Men, when you look at men. You know, um, and then you look at women. I wouldn't be in such a hurry to catch up to men in a lot of things, um, and that's certainly one of those areas where you see uh, schoolgirls now uh, becoming a lot more violent, fighting mm-hmm. physically, fighting, using weapons, part of gangs, uh, this sort of thing. I mean, I'm not not suggesting women have never been violent. I mean, certainly they can be when they have to be, um, but a lot of the time it takes a lot more to provoke them, and and a lot of it, uh, when it comes to women, it is historically it hasn't been necessarily. Um, random. Mm. Uh, there's been pretty rational, logical reasons why um, they, they've become violent, um, as opposed to men who, uh, particularly young males, I mean, uh, you're more likely to be a victim of violence in Australia uh, as a, a young white male between the age of 15 to 25 mm. uh, than any other. You know, so uh, it, it is uh, something that uh, we tend to lose as we get older. Uh, I mean, they've even seen that in the prison system that the older violent criminals tend to become less violent as they get older. Is that just a natural drop of testosterone? Yeah, they believe that's got a lot to do with it. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It certainly seems like there's a serious crisis of masculinity. If you look into the, the world of men and, and the headspace of men, there's there's a crisis. There's a huge, huge crisis. Absolutely. I think... Uh, what what is a male? I mean, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you could answer that question. Now, you, you it's very hard to come up with an answer. Mm. Um, and I think, um, you know, um, the yeah, male privilege. Uh, look, I, I think uh, before I start flatting, before people start flatting that round as being something good, you really want to have a look. Uh, and suicide rates and, and and things like that are a good example that it's uh, you know not necessarily privilege you want. Mm. Phil, we've already launched right into it. Let's take one step back. Yeah. Please tell us, uh, okay. who are you and what do you do? What's your name? What's your full name? Okay, so it's Philip Armstrong. Uh, currently, I actually hold uh, several positions, but the position we're, we're looking at at this current moment is the uh, Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Counselling Association. And what is the Australian Counselling Association? So the Australian Counselling Association is Australia's peak body for uh, counsellors and psychotherapists. Uh, counselling is what we call a self-regulating industry which covers around about 90% of professions in Australia. So it is not, uh, it's certainly not unique and it's not rare. It is generally how most professions in Australia are regulated through a self-regulatory process. So primarily what it is, is uh, we promote counsellors to join ACA, become registered and meet the standards and uh, the criteria of membership of the the association. And what that then does, it reflects to the public when they... uh, they use a counsellor who's registered. So we call them registered counsellors. So mm-hmm. when they use a registered counsellor, um, they can be assured that these people um, have had their qualifications uh, rigorously checked. They've gone through a, a process, um, but they also adhere to a code of conduct, which means that members of the public have a uh, 
or the councillors or the members of ACA become accountable to the public mm-hmm. through that code of conduct because should they overstep boundaries, then the consumer actually has recourse, which is something they don't have if they're using any professional or any service from somebody who is not uh, within a self-regulatory um, system. Right. And you're, of course, no stranger to counselling. You are a trained counsellor yourself. Yes, yes. I, I hold a, a degree at the University of New England uh, in counselling and uh, I hold uh, a bunch of other qualifications. But yeah, I was a registered counsellor. I uh, have uh, experience working in uh, non-government organisations. Uh, at one stage, I was a coordinator of a resource centre in Logan. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who knows Queensland knows Logan. It's uh, a pretty high need area. So uh, you know, I spent four years working there. So that was not only was it interesting, but uh, I got, gained a hell of a lot of experience uh, working there. Um, I've also been in private practice. I've uh, owned and run employee assistance programs. So I've you know, won significant tenders to, to do that. Um, so I've been sort of at that end of the, uh, the spectrum as well. Uh, I've had a clinic where I've had supervisors and I've trained. I've even had psychologists working for me and such. And uh, then I moved into the political spectrum of uh, the hmm. industry and that was moving into uh, uh, the Australian Counseling Association. And that was primarily because of my concerns many years ago of uh, the, the lack of accountability of counsellors and the uh, the standard of training curriculums was pretty poor. But also, I mean, uh, look, at when I when I came into counselling in the uh, early mid-90s, there were 72 counselling associations. Hmm. None of them was a national peak body. They were all primarily what you call alumni, in other words. They were started by training organisations or modalities for graduates of that modality or that training organisation. So it wasn't a, an independent peak body or an industry body, it was more a, it was an alumni, that pretty much is what they were. But also, uh, there was only one university that had a degree in counselling. So, uh, you know, getting a degree in counselling was, was very difficult in those days. So a lot of people end up through diplomas. Uh-huh. And there were no jobs. When I, when I, when I graduated as a counsellor, there were no jobs. You, you could not find a job for a counsellor. And they didn't exist. And it took many years before we changed that over. But uh, yeah, we're, we're now in uh, 2020 where we actually, ACA, we have a, a jobs or employment portal. We actually mm-hmm. advertise more jobs than we have unemployed members. So that's the employment rate now, as opposed to when I first came in, there were no jobs. But also now we have 80% of Australian universities now offer a uh, undergraduate or graduate qualification in counselling. So we've gone from in the mid-90s to one university with a, a, a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, to now 80% and 96%, 96% of those universities, their courses are accredited with ACA. Yeah, right. So let's dive into that. I guess if someone's out there and they're listening or they know someone that's in need and they, they just want to go talk to someone, the landscape mm-hmm. is confusing because you can go see a counsellor, you can see a psychotherapist, you can see a psychologist, you can see a psychiatrist. Let's start with a counsellor. What is a counsellor? What does that mean? Okay, so yeah, it, it, it's complex because they're all overlapping. They all have certain synergies. And at the end of the day, they all use the same psychological therapies. Mm. Counselors train in evidence-based psychological therapies. And they're the same that psychologists are trained in and the same that psychiatrists are trained in. And to a, a degree, the same that social workers are trained in. So we all use the same modalities and methods. It's how we use it is what generally defines the difference between between the three so uh, with with counseling primarily what we do uh, a counselor there's no prejudgment or 
a, uh, a medical assessment of a, uh, a condition, primarily somebody comes in to see us, we accept the individual or it could be a couple or, or it could be a family. We accept them all as individuals and all as being unique and all of them as being okay. They just have issues. Uh, and so what uh, counselling is, it's, uh, they, they call it the talking therapy, which is sort of dumbing it down a bit, but primarily it's about through the talking process, we then work through people with what is the issue? Where does it come from? Um, but also early on, I talked about layering uh, a counsellor. is about digging down and finding out what are the layers? What what first started off? Uh, now, I mean, one thing uh, we we know is that a large proportion of people who come to us with uh, with issues, um, there is a trauma. There, there mm. is a catalyst within their life that started it off and then there are complications that come in and it lays it to a point where it becomes an issue. So it could be behavioural, it could be communication, it could be social, it could be a combination. So the counsellor just deals with the person with that issue at that time without a diagnosis. Um, so it's honouring the individual and working with the individual without a medical or a, a psychological diagnosis, simply working that person. Having said that, you get to a, a, a point where it becomes obvious the person may actually have a, uh, uh, an issue that needs to be uh, diagnosed. And that could simply be somebody with um, paranoia or schizophrenia or something like that. So counsellors are trained on how to identify those issues. We don't diagnose them, but we would identify that and we would suggest that the person probably needs something a little bit different to counselling and would possibly need to go to a psychiatrist where that would be formally diagnosed. Mm. Uh, and there could be then a issue of medication might be required. And uh, so that's where the psychiatrist comes in. So that is the primarily difference and and again with a psychologist particularly if you're looking at the mental health care system now in australia the better access system through medicare for a uh, a member of the public to access a, psycho a psychologist um generally they'll go to a gp get a formal diagnosis uh whatever the issue is mm -hmm. um, and then go to the psychologist so the psychologist works from what's called a, a dsm which is a diagnostic statistical manual which is actually not a, um, a medical diagnosis. It's not even a proven diagnosis. It's simply a group of psychiatrists in, uh, in the US get together and decide this is what's common to an issue. And if they show these symptoms, then this is what they have. But mm -hmm. certainly a lot of people in mental health don't agree with it. As I said, it has very little scientific basis to it, but that, that's generally what, what is used. Uh, whereas counselors don't use the DSM. Um, as I said, we, we generally just deal with the person as the individual who they are when they come to see us and then we work it from there. If um, if someone goes to their GP and gets a mental health care plan, can they use that re rebate with a counsellor? No, they can't. The uh, That is something that the Australian Counselling Association with RCAP, which is the Australian Register of Counsellors and Psychotherapists, um, we are lobbying government to, to change that over because the, uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, we, we pretty much say, no, the, the consumer doesn't get access to that. The, mm. uh, there are other ways that they can do it, but not, not currently. Right. Uh, and you did talk about the role that ACA is playing in formalizing and bringing accountability to the landscape of counselors. So mm. to just reflect on that for a moment, if someone calls them, well, there is no formal training required for someone to call themselves a counselor. Is that right? That's true, but I also I think we 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 should always keep that in perspective. A lot of people use that as they oh that's terrible for counsellors. Well, you know I call myself a social worker with no training, uh, mm. nothing illegal about that. Uh, I call myself a welfare worker, a a 
child support where I, you know, there's only, I think there's only 19 professional protected titles in Australia, and yet there's tens of thousands of professional titles. So yes, anybody can call themselves a counsellor. Having said that, what we do uh, within the industry to protect the consumer is we have a national register, which I just alluded to, which is RCAP, which is the Australian Register of Counsellors and Psychotherapists. Uh, ACA is a partner uh, of that. And so mm. all registered, and uh, I think it's, it's probably 75% of counsellors on that register are actually ACA registered. So um, you go to that register, and if a counsellor's on that register, then they're what we call a registered counsellor or registered psychotherapist, which means that they have formally registered with ACA. So again, they're accountable to a code of conduct. Their qualifications have been formally assessed. Uh, mm. and they have to meet uh, certain guidelines and ensure they get supervision all the rest of it. So, yeah, anybody can call themselves a counsellor, um, but not anybody can get themselves on a register of counsellors. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction to make, and I think that's where the little that's where one of the little nuggets of gold is. If you do want to reach out and speak to a counsellor, then it seems like there's a lot of benefit in pursuing a registered counsellor over just a counsellor. As a part of the um, registration process, is there a insurance requirement? Yes, uh, to be a registered counsellor who works in private practice, um, you must have insurance. Um, we have uh, the Australian Counselling Association have uh, worked with an organisation called Focus Insurance, and that's our recommended insurer. And all our members who have Focus Insurance have a minimum $20 million professional indemnity and public liability insurance policy. Perfect, great. Uh, in terms of costing as well, where would a session for someone listening who wants to, to reach out and get some support, where would a session with a counsellor sit relative to a session with a psychotherapist, a counsellor, uh, sorry, a um, psychologist or a psychiatrist? Um, a session with a counsellor, a psychotherapist um, and a psychologist are pretty much, they're, they're right about 60 minute sessions. Um, so mm-hmm. they, they don't really, um, they're, they're, not, they're no different. Look, as I said, the, the difference between a counsellor, psychotherapist and psychologist is very slim. All have tertiary qualifications, all have to have supervision, all are trained in psychological therapies, all use evidence-based practice. The, uh, the differences are reasonably slim, which is one of the reasons why we um, uh, are confused as to why government um, is not giving uh, access to Medicare rebates to counsellors uh, on the basis that actually, uh, if you want to do a mapping exercise between current providers of Medicare rebates and counsellors, you'll find actually in a lot of cases, counsellors actually have a higher standards of, uh, of training and post-qualification requirements to remain registered. Mm. Um, so there's, there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of confusion as to what's the bias that seems to exist within the Department of Health um, preventing counsellors coming on board when we already meet the current criteria that others who have access to it meet. Mm. Um, so, so getting back to your question, though, where uh, you'd get a, a 60 minute session, usually uh, you can get 90 minutes or maybe up to two hours if it's a couple or a family. OK. And, and is there a typical price range for getting an hour with a counsellor, with a registered counsellor? Counsellors are very flexible with payment. So you can be anything from 60 to 180, 200 dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that'll primarily depend on whether you're in a regional area, uh, an isolated area, a, a city. Um, obviously, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane are far more uh, expensive than regional areas. But also counsellors, because they're not reliant on the uh, taxpayer-funded Medicare system, 
that they can lower their prices depending on a person's ability to pay. Yeah, that's that's a really good insight to get. Uh, you talked a little bit about psychotherapists. What is a psychotherapist? That is a that is a, a, a an ongoing debate that's been going on ever since Freud um, termed okay. the uh, well term the term psychotherapy. Look, uh, in in ACA we don't have a, we don't differentiate between psychotherapists and, and counsellors. Look, um, where it used to be, I mean, there used to be a, a, def, a dividing line. If you went back 10, 15 years ago, what what you would have been, what the answer to that question would be, a counsellor's training was very simple, uh, and therefore counsellors were very good for maybe early intervention type work, mm-hmm. um, and just having a chat with people who are upset. The we used to call them the uh, the worried well was a term that was bandied about there for quite a while. Um, yet a psychotherapist would be somebody who'd have three or four years of significant training and would would delve right down into the psyche as to why people have issues and they would deal with more complex issues. So um, sexual abuse, trauma, things like that is where the psychotherapist would work because uh, to train as a psychotherapist would take several years. And again, after qualification, there'll be a certain criteria you'd have to continue to meet. Mm-hmm. What's happened in, in that time, though, is uh, and this goes back to what I said at the beginning. You know, there was only one degree in counselling when, when I first started. Now we have 80% of universities pumping out. So the uh, the average registered counsellor, such as you know, myself, with tertiary qualifications, postgraduate qualifications, uh, you know, uh, I've actually lectured at uni and done all sorts of things. The, the difference has disappeared now. So what we have is the same amount or equal amount. So it's now very difficult to tell the difference because councillors are now trained to work with complex issues. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, and they do post-qualification training and supervision and, and all sorts of things. So pretty much uh, what I say, without being sort of arrogant, but really the differences in the spelling, unfortunately, there is still a, a, a certain group in, within, Australia, within, within all countries, actually, this, this is in, in most Western countries, uh, groups of psychotherapists who still like to suggest they're not counsellors, uh, that their training is is different and of a higher level and all sorts of things. Well, that debate's been going on. The actually the British Association of Counsellor Psychotherapists did a did a ten year research into the difference, and the conclusion at the end of that ten year study was they couldn't find a difference. Um, really? Yeah. Uh, there is nothing a psychotherapist can claim they can do that a counsellor can't, and vice versa. Um, there's nothing a counsellor can claim they can do that a psychotherapist can't do. It absolutely depends on your training, the depth of your training, and what work you've done since your training, and how much supervision you get. Yeah. That's what determines your ability, not your title. I guess I always had the connection for a psychotherapist going back to Sigmund Freud and the whole couch mm. setup where you you sit reclining and you're talking about early childhood experiences and trying to draw connections between early trauma and current state of mind. Is that is that should I just throw that whole image out of the window, or is there some truth Absolutely. behind that? Absolutely, out the window. Uh, look, that, <laughs> okay. that's like for a start. For a start, that's psychoanalysis. That's not psychotherapy, although psychoanalysis is considered to be part of a certain psychotherapy. But look, psychoanalysis is very rarely used these days. There is still uh-huh. uh, a certain uh, small group of therapists who do use it and and claim they get benefits from it. But look, the uh, the science just isn't there. The um, you know, there is there is no science to suggest that you get better outcomes. Actually, it suggests you don't necessarily get better outcomes using psychoanalysis. It, uh, it, it a lot of what it was based on, um, not necessarily flawed, but um, you know what we've done is we've learned a lot more about people, human beings, but also the human race has changed. <clears throat> I mean, you've got to remember, we go back to Freud, which is pre World War Two. 
Mm. Um, people were very, very different. Uh, for a start, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, even Freud was talking about a female's climax as being a psychological condition. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, I mean, a lot of sci- uh, Freud's early work has been certainly debunked, but we needed it to, to get the ball rolling. I mean, it certainly had value at the time. But we know, uh, like like medicine, nutrition, all these sorts of things, we know what we thought we knew, not necessarily the best, and we've come along, we found better things that work, uh, more efficient, um, and get better results. The same thing's happened with Freud, you know, ahead of his time. Uh, mm. Things have moved on since then. We've certainly moved on a long way, that's for sure. Um, you talked about modalities before. Uh, can you dive into what that means and what sorts of modalities a counsellor would have in their toolbox? Okay, to be a registered uh, counsellor uh, with ACA, a counsellor must have a, a knowledge and have been assessed and, and trained in the use of at least six different modalities. <clears throat> so uh, the, the modality comes down to you might use uh, without trying to bamboozle your, your, your listening audience. Now we have things like one, one that most people probably heard of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. Um, so that's about how we frame things, look at things and, and looking from the cognitive and that. We also have uh, what we call person-centered, which is actually looking at the person as an individual and looking at emotions and things like that. Then there's a whole heap of others. We have emotional freedom technique, which is uh, they call tapping, tapping the, the body's broken into grids and we use that. There's EMDR, which is um, um, eye, eye movement, and they use that for trauma. It's about focusing on the eyes and, and doing a heap of stuff. And, and that, that has a, I think about a 40% um, success rate with uh, trauma clients. Mm. So there are different modalities. And the thing is, you've got to look at the human, human beings. Uh, we all have different backgrounds, different cultures, different education, socioeconomics, um, belief systems, and all this. So it makes sense that you can't try one thing. It's going to fit all human beings because we're all, not only are we all unique ourselves, however, we all come from different communities, whether it be a, uh, uh, a community orientated through a belief system or a, a community orientated through socioeconomic or status or how we identify as a gender. Um, all these sort of communities have a different vision of the world. They, mm-hmm. they see the world through different lenses. Therefore, a counsellor, to be able to join and work with that person, must be able to have different modalities that that person can relate to. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, like CBT would work, work uh, a white male, uh, mature age male um, you know, in Australia. CBT would possibly work pretty well with them. Um, mm-hmm. But if you had a, uh, a, a young woman, you might want to try person-centred. Um, and that, that's not labelling them because it, it can actually be the opposite as well. Um, so we, we learn different modalities that work with different types um, or different parts uh, of who we are and how we identify um, as individuals. So we have had conversations with quite a few other uh, mental health professionals and they've touched on some of these mm-hmm. modalities. So it's great to hear that they exist in a counsellor's toolbox and that they're trained and experienced to use those as well. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing right now with COVID? Are you getting any feedback right now from your team and your members on what they're seeing? How is Australia changing and what's going on in people's minds right now? Uh, look, it's, uh, I mean, it's very fluid. There's, there's, there's certainly things that we're seeing and not necessarily from the Australian experience, but we're certainly, uh, particularly from Europe, where the, um, the, the COVID has been more rampant, the, uh, the death rates are far higher and they had the lockdowns before we did. 
uh, and uh, you know, there's some uh, some extraordinary research has come from the uh, University of Milan in Italy, where obviously you know, they, their death rates were far higher than ours. And what they found that you know, they're looking at survivors now of uh, COVID, and they're looking at you know over 31 percent have uh, come down with post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. 42 percent of survivors had of anxiety. Even 20 percent have um, developed uh, behavioural issues. 40 percent insomnia. So, you know, you're looking at over 56% of people who survive COVID, and obviously we have far more survivors than deaths, have now got psychological disorders or um, behavioural um, issues as a repercussion of, um, of COVID itself. What this has done is this has changed the entire landscape. Um, yeah, I, I, I've actually been in, uh, in contact with the Minister Greg Hunt's office and and I've made a few suggestions which haven't gone down well, but I, what I've suggested that, um, you know, what the department needs to do is put to one side everything that we knew about mental health as far as predictions for the future, mm. plans of models for the future, spending for the future, and all, it, it all needs to, it's all redundant. When, when you look at those figures and you look at uh, COVID and you look at the impact rate of COVID and, and the, the simple fact is that if things keep going the way they are, a significant proportion of Australians are going to end up with it. Um, yeah. Then, then you add fifty-six percent of people who survive, uh, which is the majority who survive COVID, are going to have some sort of need for mental health services. The, the current system is not going to work. Uh, it's not going to manage it. The current spending is not going to work. A lot of the spending now is ad hoc. Um, there is very little point to it. Um, yeah, they're, they're they're trying to dumb down mental health by putting in this uh, this new access, giving people six weeks training in CBT. I think Australians deserve a little bit better than that. Um, mm. it, takes, uh, it takes five years for a councillor to get to the level that, uh, you know, our level three members, uh, and over six or seven years to get to level four. And they're talking about uh, people with a six week course in CBT. You know, the, what, what this shows is a total misunderstanding of, of COVID and what people are going through. And a lot of the, uh, and this doesn't include the amount of suicide, anxiety, depression that's been created by the lockdown. Yeah. Um, you know, what we're hearing a lot of is that the waiting lists for current professionals like uh, psychologists who have access to Medicare rebates, the waiting lists uh, are, are just growing because what happened is, and, you know, and, and this, this the, the, the minister's office have got absolutely right. And they've extended the, uh, the amount of sessions that you can get uh, with a psychologist up to 20 now. Mm -hmm. uh, and and that is great because it gives people more sessions they need but the downside of that is if the psychologists are giving individuals more sessions then their diaries or their their, their calendars yeah. become shorter yeah they can take on fewer people so where are they making up the uh, the shortfall well you know right now we have around about eight thousand registered councillors in australia who have significant qualifications i mean over um you know, over i think it's um i think something like um 60, 70% of the student members that we have right now are students studying master's level counselling. So yeah, you know, right. that's, that's, that's the level. I mean, the majority of our qualified members um, have master's degrees. So we're not talking about six week you know, CBT training courses. Uh, and none of these counsellors or psychotherapists have access to Medicare rebates. We already have a significant trained workforce to take up the shortfall that is going to be long-term. I mean, a lot of these people coming out with uh, issues directly attributed to COVID, and we're talking about not just the survivors of COVID, we're talking about 
the depression and anxiety that comes with the lockdown. But then we're talking about the insecurity of job loss. Mm. Yeah, the, the government's now saying that the uh, unemployment rate could be up to 13% time we, you know, time we come into next year. That job loss, that insecurity, but also the amount of professions or, or, or trades that have now had to close down. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of these small businesses that are closing down, um, people uh, are surviving on, on JobKeeper knowing that as soon as it finishes, they don't have a job because the yeah. industries are, are being propped up by artificially by, by that. Uh, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have it because it's a great idea. Um, mm. But the problem is when it stops, um, those people then become unemployed because the jobs don't exist. They've been kept alive artificially. The mental health repercussions of all this are going to be significant. So when you look at things like we've got the Productivity Commission having it, uh, bringing out its review, which is well overdue now, um, should have been mm -hmm. out uh, several months ago. But those recommendations are based on research and data that was collected pre-COVID. Yeah. yeah. So those recommendations are... Uh, yeah, and and I yeah, the the, the 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 politicians will tell us, oh, but they they built in factors and 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 this that and the other. Yeah, they didn't. Uh, no one could have predicted the outcome of COVID. No, of course and not. We have to go back to the drawing board because it's significant, and not only that, it's impacting on young people in a different ways. It impacts on you know our uh, twenty to thirty year olds. It's impacting on the the uh, forty to fifty year olds very differently because these are people um, you know, coming into um, the the uh, peak of their careers, but then we're looking at the sixty to seventy year olds who are looking at retirement. Their retirement isn't worth zip. I mean, everybody's uh, superannuation is just go whoop. Yeah. Um, and and so people are going to have to stay in employment longer, but employment's on the down. It's going to be far more competitive. Uh, yeah, I've I've even had a, a chat to my I've got a, a teenage daughter um, who's in year eleven, and and I've said to her, you know, you're going to have to be very very clever in, in how you look at not only what subjects you're going to do at university, but what qualifications you're going to come out from mm. university because you are going to be the first generation that's going to be impacted on by this. When you get out of university, we're still going to have a deficit. We're still mm. going to have unemployment. The unemployment rates are still going to be catching up uh, to what, what they were pre-COVID. Pre so jobs are going to be far more competitive and you're not going to have experience. You're going to have a qualification and say, if you're not smart on the qualification that you choose, um, you know, you're just going to go straight into the unemployment ring. The the anxiety and the and the the um, well, pretty much the anxiety that that puts her under. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a 16 year old having to make decisions. A 16 year old's pre-COVID didn't have to make. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, know, you you could make a mistake and oh, that's fine, and you just change your subjects and off you go, uh, because we were economically in, in a pretty solid position. We didn't have a, a deficit. That's right. Jobs were on the rise. Um, yeah, the take a gap year, go traveling for a bit. Oh yeah. Think about your life. Come back. Yep. Uh, you don't have luxuries. We don't have anymore. You can't even walk out your front door, let alone have a gap year and yeah. go overseas. I mean, all those choices are gone. But the choices you make, you're going to have to be very, very clever in making them because the uh, you know the, the safety nets are just not going to be there. That mm. were there pre-COVID. The world has changed, and Australia has changed, and. I, I, I commend the uh, nearly all the politicians. I wouldn't be a politician for the money in the world at this time. And I think they've done a great job in this country, but politicians, in my experience, lack severely vision. And we need vision right now because, you know, um, we're, we're not looking at a vaccine until you know, early next year and uh, yeah. we're going. You know, and so people need to be planning now 
for what is going to be the demand in three or four years' time. And we can't wait for the next cohort of psychiatrists. It takes eight years to train a psychiatrist. We can't wait for the next cohort of clinical psychologists. That's another six years' training. We don't have that luxury to wait for these cohorts. And when they do graduate, they're only, I mean, they, they only graduate now um, mm-hmm. at a level to replace um, the loss that we make up in that time. And it's not to increase numbers. So there's not going to be an increase um, in, these, in these professions within the next four to five years. But we have six to 10,000 counsellors sitting around yeah. doing nothing. Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? It does to me, um, and uh, yeah, it's it, uh, it, it it's ridiculous in the in the fact that they're already trained and ready to go. So it's not even going to cost uh, to train them up. I mean, uh, so what, what's a level three level training in CBT? Okay, in cognitive behavioural so, therapy. Uh, so so a level three member of ACA is somebody who has a minimum of a bachelor's degree in counselling, plus they have a minimum of seventy five hours of supervised practice mm-hmm. and they have a minimum 750 hours client contact time so what you're looking at is somebody who who has at least a minimum uh two to four years post qualification supervised practice so this is somebody with a five to six year sequence of training and practice supervised practice which is equivalent to a psychologist yeah look i think that's uh, a great example to just to actually walk us through to show us the level of rigor involved in in the certification process for ACA. Mm. So where can someone look up whether or not a registered counsellor is trained and to what level certified? Okay, so um, the easiest thing is to look on the uh, Australian Counselling Association's website. We have a search facility on the website for the consumer. It doesn't cost anything. Uh, It's open to everybody. And what you can do is go into that and that will take you uh, and you can just put in the, the person's name and it'll bring up their their name, their, their status within the association. Most, uh, a lot of our members have also a profile page. And so that mm-hmm. profile page will let you know what areas they specialize in. So they might specialize in CBT, they might specialize in person-centered or uh, one of the other modalities, or they might have several modalities. But uh, we also have professional colleges. So we have the College of Clinical Supervisors. We have a College of Family Therapists. You know, we have uh, College of Drug and Alcohol. So we have uh, several colleges as well, and that's for specialised areas mm-hmm. um, that members can go into. So you need a, a further qualification to go into those colleges. So someone can say that I have a, I'm a, I have a membership in the College of Depression. I'm making that up. Is that a college? Yeah. Great. Uh, no, it's not, but because uh, oh. that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a condition. Um, right. But yeah, what you'd want if, if you've got a uh, if you've got depression, again, the, the reason we have four levels of membership, and the reason why we have four levels of membership is because mental health is a ongoing. It's a spectrum. It's a, it's a, it, it goes along the spectrum, and you can be at mm. either end of the spectrum or somewhere along that spectrum. And so, if you're at the uh, lower end, and and again, this is um, where the, again government spending is just is just you know it you, it doesn't make sense to me. Around about 90% of Australians will suffer from a, uh, a mental health condition um, as opposed to illness. Less than 10% of Australians suffer from clinical conditions such as schizophrenia, uh, paranoia, those sorts of issues where people need very, very specialist high-end uh, treatment that, that probably includes medication, this sort of thing, working with psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. The majority of Australians have 
anxiety, depression, depression, anxiety, depression. Uh, but if you look at the, particularly GPs and what they, um, the, the majority of the mental health care plans is anxiety and, and depression. Yeah. And somebody's depression can be, um, okay, say, if, say one, of, one of your parents or a sibling died tomorrow, um, obviously you've become depressed. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's not nice when these things happen and, we, and, and sometimes we need some support to get through that because it's not uh, something maybe you've been expecting or, or whatever and uh, because this is a loved one uh, you've lost and it's going to impact on your, your ability to work, your ability to, to sleep, uh, all these sort of things. So you, only, uh, so you, you don't need to go and see a clinical psychologist um, this is a normal everyday part of life, which doesn't diminish the impact that it has on the individual, but mm. it's a normal part of life. Mm. Um, and if you see somebody straight away, then they can help you walk, th- help you walk through the process of loss because it's a grief and loss issue. Yeah, but if right. it's not treated, if it's left, it turns, can turn into depression. Now, depression is, is it, it's, I think it's, it's overused, the, the term depression, because most of us are depressed at some time if you look at the what a lot of the GPs use, which is they call the K10, it's a 10 question. And if you get so many of those questions, you answer them a certain way, then your diagnosis has been depressed. Well, you know, anybody having a bad week <laughs> can be diagnosed as depressed on the K10. Mm. Um, and, but you're not having depression. You're just not feeling well. You're feeling down. You're, and you know, simply being able to access somebody for a quick chat, whatever can help you. But if that goes untreated and it's complicated by these different layers, then you're going to need somebody with more training to help you. So you might, um, we, we have what we call uh, you know, early intervention, which is we want to nip things in the bud before they get serious and so get up to the clinical level. And that would be if you've had a loss and you talk to somebody straight away, generally that's early intervention. We're going to prevent you from going into right. stress. Okay. So, and that is, that is where money should be spent because the large majority of mental health issues that people have shouldn't get to the stage they get to like absolutely yeah um post-traumatic stress disorder yeah for post-traumatic stress disorder uh, you don't you don't just one day wake up with it it takes six months to progress from the trauma to where it becomes entrenched to become a significant problem if you get help immediately after that trauma the chances are in the majority not all but in the majority cases you're going to nip that in the bud and help the person walk through that process understand what's happening and and how to move on with their life living with that issue because we never say you get over you don't get over these things you learn how to live with them and put them somewhere that that doesn't impact too much on your quality of life that's what we want but if it goes untreated it then becomes uh, more complex and clinical and then yeah the the higher the level uh, of um, practitioner that you need to help you work with it yep the higher level of intervention the higher the yeah. quantity of the cost yeah. associated with with trying to yeah absolutely um phil i want to circle back to something you mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation you said that you yourself had run an eap yes Uh, that is a that is a resource available perhaps to many listeners that may not even be aware of it could you talk us through what is an eap what does it stand for how does it work and how do people tap into their eaps Okay, so an EAP is an employee assistance program. What it is, is the majority of large employers or mid-sized employers, some small, they contract to an organisation that supplies free counselling services to its employees. Um, so if a, yeah. an employee is having a, a relationship issue, uh, it could be a drug and alcohol issue, it could be a workplace bullying issue, 
Um, it, it could be something even simple where they're just getting stressed within the job. They can reach out through their employee because the employer pays for it to a qualified practitioner um, who will then give them a certain amount of free sessions and that is paid for by the employer. Very, um, very effective services, particularly if used appropriately. And what this does is it, it helps people to maintain their position within the workplace to remain employed uh, as well as dealing with whatever the issue may be um, so that they don't lose their job. But also um, obviously the issue may impact for a short period of time on their ability to work. But the whole point of it is so they come out the other end and are main, able to maintain the level of work that they were doing um, prior to the issue. Mm -hmm. And how would someone find out whether or not their business has an EAP? Well, technically, um, yeah, any, any organisation that the contracts to employee assistant program, when somebody joins that workplace, um, they should be given as part of their uh, introduction into the uh, or orientation into the workplace information about the EAP, how to contact them. The majority of the time, uh, the, well, it depends on the organisation. Sometimes you can contact independently or you might have to go through HR depending on the, uh, the organisation. But certainly you just ask your upline, um, is there an EAP if, uh, if you're not sure? Um, but as I said, uh, most most workplaces, because it, it's in their interest to use their EAPs because they're very effective and they're paying mm. for it. So obviously they, 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 they want their workers to, to use it. So it, uh, it's usually not as, uh, a well-kept secret. But yeah, I certainly have come across people who didn't realise there was an EAP, gone to the work, asked, spoke to the manager, whatever, found out, oh, actually, we do have one. Perfect. So uh, organisations that uh, don't have EAPs or contract to them um, also may have policy where they do support their workers to go and see a counsellor. Um, so it wouldn't be unusual, particularly smaller workplaces who can't afford EAPs. Mm -hmm. What they would do is um, they would support a, a worker going to a counsellor and pay for maybe the first three or four sessions if it's going to help that person within the workplace. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing resource. I've, I, when I was in the workforce, I used the the company EAP numerous times, and it was just a, an amazing immediate resource to have. So uh, I, I'm surprised it took me as long as it did to start using it. Um, so it's definitely in in this time of crisis, an amazing resource for our listeners to reach out to. And and you and you hit it on the head. Then it, it is a resource. So not only do they supply counselling services, but they'll uh, you know, they might have apps, access to web web based programs. Um, they have access to uh, fact sheets, all sorts of yeah. resources to help you. Um, even psychoeducation resources where you can read a little bit about what is depression, what is stress, what are some of the strategies to help you work through those processes. Not just using a a counsellor. So they're they're absolutely an excellent resource. Okay, well that's it for today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review and a comment. We read every single one and it gives us a huge boost to keep going. Your reviews and comments also make these conversations more discoverable by other listeners. Thank you so much.